Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. She has the look the songs, and the unmistakable voice. Stevie Nicks has always been a rock star, always. From writing her first song as a teenager to meeting guitar legend Lindsey Buckingham and beginning one of rock's most tumultuous love affairs, Stevie's life has been filled with stratospheric highs and crushing lows. As the lead singer of supergroup Fleetwood Mac, she became rich and famous almost overnight and then the sex and drugs caught up with the rock and roll. Cocaine, then a serious prescription drug addiction, took many of what Stevie says could have been her most creative years. Incredibly, she survived. Now she continues to tour the world as part of her chart-topping solo career and with Fleetwood Mac. And each time she takes the stage, she's doing what she loves most. And yet, just like when she was a little girl singing duets with her grandfather, for Stevie, it's always been about the music. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Stevie Nicks. My granddad was the first person that really brought music to me, and he brought it to me very young. He started singing to me when I was really little, and I instantly took to it. He was a really good fiddle player. He was a great harmonica player, and he wrote really good songs. I can remember him coming to our house and spending a week and getting out his guitar, and he'd play guitar, and I'd sing with him, and, and I'm little, but I would still manage to be kind of very conscious of who he was and what he was doing. And he would sing different crazy country songs for me and we would actually be able to pump out a little duet here and there. And I was thrilled. And I think he knew from the very, very beginning that this was gonna be something that I would probably wanna do too because I just took to it like a fish to water. My mother was always totally supportive of me and whatever I wanted to do, even as a young girl. But she was also very strict with me, and she was hard on me in a lot of ways because she wanted me to be independent. And that's because she was very poor when she was young. So she really rose up above the fray to be independent at 16. And she wanted me to, to not ever have to depend on anyone. And she wanted me to be fearless. So I, you know, had to work for everything I got and I didn't get to buy really expensive clothes in high school, and my mom made a lot of my clothes. From the day she married my dad, she took care of all the money, and she took 50% out of every one of my dad's checks and put it in the bank. And my mom would always say to me, you better be the president of your company or the lead singer of your band or the boss, because you don't like to be told what to do. And she was totally right. My mother kept me very close. So because she kept me so close and because she kept me home a lot, she continually was 
telling me all her little wise ways to get through life. So she was always talking to me about life, always. She taught me about rules, even though I don't love rules. I understood that there were rules and I followed them because I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't ever want her to be mad at me. So I learned that there are things that you could do and things that you couldn't do. And my mom just passed away in December. She got emphysema and, and pneumonia and she passed away very unexpectedly. And so I thought I had years left to ask her all those questions that I wanted to ask her. And uh, then she was gone and I didn't get to. It wasn't because I didn't want to sit down with her and talk to her about her life. It was just because I just didn't think she was going anywhere. I have really been soul searching about the fact that there's a lot of stuff that I'm never going to know because I didn't sit down with her and ask her. And that's been a very hard lesson for me. So my advice to everybody that still has their parents is make sure that you sit down and talk to them about what they did when they were kids and what they were like when they were young and when they were first married and all those things because you really lose out if you don't. Time waits for no one and things can end tomorrow. So if there's stuff you want to know, find out. I got a guitar when I was 15 and a half, almost 16. And I wrote a song and I, you know, gathered my parents in my room, listened to this, played the guitar, played my song, and they were both like, you know what, that's a really good song. So from that moment on, I think they went, you know what, that's what she's gonna, she's gonna go in that direction. I met Lindsay Buckingham at a gathering in my senior year at Menlo Atherton High School in San Francisco. I went to this party that I don't really remember what it was, and Lindsay was sitting in a chair over in the corner playing his guitar, and he was singing California Dreaming. And of course I knew that song. And I brazenly walked over and burst into song. And I think he was a little surprised because it really was kind of a gutsy thing to do. But luckily, I'm a good singer and I knew the words and I'm a really good harmony singer. So I was able to just whip up to the Michelle Phillips, Mama Cass part in a second. And so we sang, you know, three fourths of the song, sang it out. And then I think I walked away, I, or I, I probably said, hi, I'm Stevie Nicks, and he probably said, hi, I'm Lindsey Buckingham. He tells a different story. He says that I actually reached down and, like, kissed him on the cheek or something. I don't remember that. But he says that happened. So maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Then I didn't see Lindsey again until his band, his drummer, actually called me, and they asked me, well, Lindsey remembered, you know, that night where you sang with him at that party, and would you like to be in our band? We're looking for a girl singer. And I said to myself, what kind of band is this? You know, because a phone call like that, it could be any kind of a band. And so the guy who was the drummer, who was very, very funny and very dry, he said, Stevie, this is San Francisco. It's a rock band. And I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking, okay, I can do it. I, th I think I can do it. Okay, I can do it. I mean, I, I have walked around with my brush singing Take Another Little Piece of My Heart with Janis Joplin around my house, so I can probably do this. So I said, yeah, sure, I can do it. I'd love to do it. And I asked my parents, and they said, you can be in a band, and your father and I will totally let you do that, but you also, you have to go to college. You can't just quit school. If you stay in school, we will support you. So I found out then that Lindsay lived in the same gated community that my mom and dad and me and my brother lived in. So on Monday, I 
showed up at his house at 5.30, and the whole band, all five people in the band, including me, were there, and I just started learning songs. I was able to go to practice from 5.30 to 10.30 every night, and then I was able to play a gig on Friday and Saturday night, and then I was able to have Sunday to study, and then I would study when I would get home at 10.30 until 2 or 3 or 4, and get up and start again. As long as I did that, my mom and dad were fine. Lindsay and I both had a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and we really weren't interested in each other at all. We, we were in a band together, it was really great, and we were the two lead singers standing, you know, right there. And it was a really good band. And that was, you know, 68, 69, 70, into, just barely into 71, which was the best part of San Francisco music ever. So we were right in the middle of the Woodstock years. And we played everywhere, and we opened for every big band that was up in San Francisco at that time, from Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Frost Amphitheater, The Fillmore, Avalon Ballroom, Winterland, and everything in between. It was a marvelous time to live in San Francisco. Lindsay's dad was the president of a coffee company up by the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And he let us have a little room in his coffee building. We could go there at 9, and we could stay there from like 9 to 3 and work on our music and we had an Ampex 4-track that's like the size of a washing machine today. So we'd drive up there every night. I'd sit on the floor and crochet, and Lindsay would work the magic on the thing, and then I'd, he'd say, okay, here, sing a vocal, and I'd like put my crocheting down, and I'd sing a vocal, and then he'd take the mic back, and then he'd play the guitar, and then he'd play another track on the guitar, and then we'd sing backgrounds, and then I'd go back to my crocheting, and, and that was like for 10 months. We were working really hard to write these songs and get this all together. And that kind of pushed Lindsay and I together. We'd be up in the, the big, empty, creepy, freaky coffee place all night long by ourselves, and we just fell in love. So by the time we got to the end of the 10 months, we were definitely a couple, which kind of changed everything in a lot of ways because then we, just me and him, and we were just me and him moving to Los Angeles by ourselves. When I called my mother and said, it's time for us to go to Los Angeles, the time is right. She said, well, your father and I support that. However, we will completely withdraw all financial support. I'm sitting in my apartment in San Jose like, okay, I know, I know that, and I accept that. So Lindsay and I drove to Los Angeles, and I got a job as a waitress. That was very different than living in San Francisco, going to school, playing big shows, when we moved to Los Angeles, we weren't playing big shows. We weren't playing any shows. We were working on our music at night, and I had a diff all different jobs in the daytime. Lindsay didn't really have any jobs, because what would he do? I mean, really, what is Lindsay Buckingham going to do? Waiter? I don't think so. I knew him way too well <laughs> to know, you know, sometimes, you know, you know your man, and you, you're like, this is it. He is a music man. That's what he does. He doesn't do anything else. I, on the other hand, am a girl of all trades. I paid the rent and paid for the car. He'd work on the music all day long, and then I'd come home and he'd have one of my songs worked out, and it would be fantastic. And then at nine o'clock, we'd go downstairs to our little basement recording studio, and we would work on our music until two or three in the morning. That's when we took all these songs and even worked on them more, and then we went in and in 1972, recorded Buckingham Knicks. And it was really great. And Polydor released it, and it got a lot of critical acclaim, and then Polydor just dropped it. 
Just drop the record. And us. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. So we were... Back to square one at that point. There was a moment towards the end of 1974 where I was really getting tired of being a waitress. And I was really, really getting tired of being just so poor. We could not afford to buy anything except just enough food to eat. And that was it, and gas for our car. During that year, I considered, well, if we do this record and we have no luck with it, maybe I'll just go back to school for a year, and at least I'll be able to, to breathe, to not, have, to not have to be a, you know, working on music all night long and being a waitress all day. And so this didn't, this didn't do a lot for our relationship because fear never helps relationships. And when you are kind of scared about where your next money is coming from or really how are you going to keep this whole boat afloat, it's really nerve-wracking, and so it's, that's hard on a relationship, and it was very hard on our relationship. And there were points during that time where I was like, this is never going to work. This is just never going to work, and we're going to end up breaking up, and everything we've worked for is going to be done, and it's all going to be for nothing. That's really what the song Landslide is about, to give that up because we, our relationship wasn't working. I just, you know, made several many different decisions along the way is it worth staying in this relationship to keep this music together? And my, my opinion always was, yes, it is. What we have to offer is way better than what I have to offer by myself or what he has to offer by himself. So you need to stay together. And then, bang, you know, Mick Fleetwood called. And life changed overnight. Fleetwood Mac, they were a very well-known band in England and in Europe, and they had come to Los Angeles to make a record, and Mick's listening to a song I wrote called Frozen Love, and he's listening to the solo. And he's listening to Lindsay play this solo, and he just went, who is this? Who, who are these people? So he called, and he called on New Year's Eve, and I went down to Tower Records, and I bought all their records. Like, there was, you know, six or seven records. And I went home, and I listened to all of them, twice. And at the end of listening to these records, I said, I think that we can add to this band. I think they have a real kind of witchy side that would appeal to us. And um, I think we can add to this band and we can make some money, Lindsay. So we should join this band. And he's like, I don't know, you know, I'm really loving this record that we're making, this our spec record that we're making for Buckingham Knicks. And of course, I'm at this point, after I've already thought about maybe going back to school, I'm like, listen, I am tired of being a waitress. I don't want to do that anymore. So we need to join the band. And he said, okay. And that was it. And we went into rehearsal a couple days later. And it just was pretty magical from that moment on. Dreams. Don't stop. Go your own way. Rhiannon. The list of hits goes on and on. Fleetwood Mac has sold over 100 million albums so far. 
In the 1970s, they were living up to their supergroup status and tales of all the stuff we hear, excessive drug use, love affairs, and eventually Stevie and Lindsay's breakup would rock the band. Lindsay and I joined Fleetwood Mac in the first day of 1975. My first impression of Christine and Mick and John was great. Mick was tall and skinny and crazy and just a creature of strangeness, you know? And Christine was beautiful and sweet and nice and very Earth Mother-y. And John, very quiet. He, he doesn't say a lot, plays amazing bass. And so this was not a hard bunch of people to really love. We rehearsed for maybe three weeks, and we then became real members of Fleetwood Mac. It was great to be young and beautiful and crazy and famous and rich. By the end of that summer, Lindsay and I together were a millionaire. It was, it was a moment. <laughs> it was spectacular. Lindsay really was my great musical love. But Lindsay was very controlling, and Lindsay was prone to be jealous. And when our relationship started to not go well, then I looked elsewhere because I was so unhappy. So we're together at this point because of our music, and we're trying to keep this music thing together because we know it's great, and we don't want to break up our music thing. Then we joined Fleetwood Mac, and of course, then we were definitely doing better because we were certainly more happy because we, had, we were making money, and we both got nice places, and everything came way up. So we were happier, and we were so excited about everything that was happening that the relationship got better for a little while. It was a very romantic time. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it was so terribly romantic between me and Lindsay, but the whole thing was romantic. We were just finishing up the end of our 12 songs in Sausalito for Rumors. And I said, we're done. I think that this is over. And we both know now that no matter what it takes, we're gonna keep Fleetwood Mac together. And our breaking up is not gonna break up this band. And I'm not gonna quit and neither are you. And we were done. And, and it's really hard, you know, when you break up with somebody or somebody breaks up with you and you're in this band. And guess what? Guess who you have to see the next day in the hotel, in the breakfast room? That person. It's really hard. And by the way, guess who you get to go on stage with tomorrow night? The person that either broke up with you or you broke up with. And you have to go on stage and just be like, fantastic. Because really, the band meant everything. And the band was way more important than each separate person's problems. And we knew that. So we never, ever, with everything that happened to us, ever let love affairs break Fleetwood Mac up. But Lindsay always blamed Fleetwood Mac for the loss of me, that had we not joined Fleetwood Mac, we would have continued on with our music, but we probably would have gotten married, and we probably would have had a child, and it would have been a different life. And it's very possible that we might have gotten married and had a family and still done our music. You know, we were still young enough then that destiny could have taken us another way, but destiny did not take us that way. Destiny took us straight into Fleetwood Mac. So I feel that that is what was supposed to happen. Otherwise, both of us would have fought harder when I said to him, I'm joining Fleetwood Mac, and so are you. He, would, he might have said, you know, well, no, and he didn't. He, he said, okay. So I think that he knew that I was right. Lindsay and I will always be, like, connected like this. 
and we still are. I made a choice years ago not to ever be married and not to have children because it would get in the way of being a true artist and following my true calling, which is being the artist that I am now. But the fact is, is that I did get married for three months and then I got unmarried. In 1981, my best friend, her name was Robin, she got leukemia and she was married to a man named Kim. About two months into her cancer, she was in remission and she got pregnant. And then she went out of remission and then she went off of all treatment because she knew that she was gonna die. And she wanted to leave that baby behind. She wanted something to be left from her. Matthew was born, Robin died, and I was grief-stricken, completely and utterly grief-stricken. I had lost the best friend I had ever had in my life. And I just went on a mission, you know, because I wanted that baby. And I convinced Kim. And so three months after Robin died, we got married. And I thought that's what Robin would want somehow. And it just blew up in our faces because it was so the wrong thing to take Matthew and her husband was so beyond insane that, you know, I mean, I can't even tell you. One day I went in and Matthew was sleeping and I swear to God, whenever I'd go in the nursery, the, the crib would almost, it would seem like it was rocking to me and I would go, she's here, she's rocking the cradle. And I went in there one day and it was just still. And I looked at Matthew and I just went, she's gone, she's gone. And I walked upstairs and I, I waited for Kim to come home. And I said, um, I don't love you and, and you don't love me. You may think you love me, but you don't. And so um, I want a divorce. I can't even, even my, my own self thinking, sitting here right now going, how could you, what were you thinking? I wasn't thinking. And so that's the story of my marriage. So what ended up happening was that I put Matthew through college, and he and I are very close. He knows the whole story. He knows exactly what happened, and because I've sat with him many times and really told him exactly what did happen. And that was just me in my own crazy way trying to help. Robin was my rock. She was my best, dearest friend since I was 14. And without her, I thought, I'll never make it. So of course I was gonna try to take care of her baby, but you can't, you can't. You have to let things go like that. It wasn't anybody's fault. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I used to carry a gram of cocaine in my boot at all times. And it was the first thing I thought of when I woke up in the morning and the last thing I thought of before I went to bed. So 1976, that's when I remember being more aware of cocaine. And it was appearing in a way where somebody would just give you a little bit and you'd be like, oh, cool, I have a little energy now. That was really what it was. So then you have a hit of coke and then you're too nervous. And then you're 
too nervous, so then you say, well, then I'll have a little shot of brandy. And then you feel like maybe you're a little, little teeny bit drunk. And then, so you'll have another hit of Coke because then that's gonna make you not so drunk. So I'm looking, you know, towards going into 1977, the making of rumors. Then cocaine really started appearing and you start buying it. And that's what makes it different. If you buy it, then you're buying it. If you're buying it, you're doing it. So we were doing it. And that's what happened. And the cycle then just escalates. So it slowly escalated, you know, 77 by 78, it was, you know, escalating more. By 79, when we went in to do the Tusk record at Village Recorders here in Los Angeles, we were pretty much there for 13 months, five days a week. A lot of cocaine being done and a lot of money being spent, gazillions of dollars. And I, I can remember thinking to myself at that point, wow, who knew four years ago that, that I would even be a part of anything that was this stupid, to be spending this much money on this stupid drug. This is crazy. Two weeks worth of cocaine could have paid our rent for six months. And it turned people into nutcases. Mick and I would never have had an affair had we not had a party and all been completely drunk and messed up and coked out and, you know, ended up being the last two people at the party. And so guess what? It's not hard to figure out what happened. What happened, and what happened wasn't a good thing. It was doomed. It was a doomed thing, caused a lot of pain for everybody, led to nothing. And I'm like, gee, could you have just laid off the brandy and the Coke and the pot for two days so that you didn't look like your eyes were swimming in water. Everybody else thought you looked beautiful, but that's because everybody else was stoned. You didn't look beautiful. You looked high and unattractive. So unattractive. So this is not a good part of what I remember about this whole thing. And I had just put out my third solo record in 1986, and I went to a plastic surgeon and he looked in my nose and said you have a really big hole in your nose and it's very dangerous and anytime you do this drug you could basically your next your last hit of coke could be your last hit of anything because this hole in your nose is way high and it could kill you you could have a brain hemorrhage my only advice to anybody who is watching me talk right now is to say save your money because it's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars to go to rehab because you will have to go or you'll die. I got home and I put my house in order and my tour manager drove me to Betty Ford and I walked through the doors of Betty Ford and said, I will never ever be walking through these doors again. So I'm done. And I was there for 30 days and it was great. It was a, an amazing experience. So that was a gift. Betty Ford was a gift. And I told Betty Ford that. I went and spoke at a Betty Ford thing a couple of years ago, and she was there, and I said to her, I just want you to know that without you, since 1985 or 86, all those songs and all that music would, not have, would never have happened because I would have been dead in a year. And she was so great, you know, because she had the problem, and she was the first lady of the United States. And it's like if the first lady of the United States could beat this, then so can I. Kalanapan was given to me a month after I got out of Betty Ford because everybody wanted me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm not an alcoholic and I refused to go. So I finally agreed 
to go to a psychiatrist. God knows why anybody would think that I needed to go on this drug. But he decided that this was the drug for me and that this was gonna be the drug that was gonna make sure I never went back to Coke. Even though I was sitting across the table from him saying, are you hearing me? I'm not gonna ever do cocaine again. I promised Betty Ford I would never be back. In hindsight, I think this guy was a rock and roll groupie doctor. He, over the next eight years, watched the lights go out in my eyes. He watched me go from 120 pounds to 175 pounds. He, he watched me sink into a mushroom cloud of crap. And he would just keep giving me a little more. Started out with one blue one in the morning and went to two blue ones, in the, one in the afternoon, one at night, and then a blue one in the afternoon, and then two blue ones was a white one, and then it was one white one three times a day, and then it was one white one, and then two white ones, and then two white ones before you went to bed. It was like, you know, horrific. And I just sat on my couch and watched TV and ordered food from Jerry's Deli and just became a total couch potato. And I can remember in like 1993, saying to myself, I used, because I, I used to do Polaroids and I used to use myself as a model. I'd do makeup and clothes and, and I would really take beautiful pictures. And I can remember like looking at a Polaroid and going, you will never take another beautiful picture. You're, you are done. You are finished. You look awful. Even with your beautiful clothes and your beautiful makeup, you look awful. And I thought to myself, I'll never walk on stage in a long, skinny black dress again. I mean, I can just remember thinking all these things, you know. I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never. It was like I had just fallen into the black hole. One day, I got up and I called my friend Glenn. And I, I say to him, I want you to take everything that Dr. What's-His-Name gives me. I just want you to take it, just like I take it at the same time I take it, and <laughs> see if you live through the day. <laughs> and he said, okay. So I gave him the morning dose, and then we had lunch, and then I gave him the afternoon dose, and then we had dinner, and we had, we had like a, a glass of red wine, and then we had more clonopin, and I think we smoked a joint. Just throw that in. And Glenn totally passed out next to the stereo system on the floor. And I, I woke him at about like four in the morning and, and I was, are you, are you dead? Are you okay? And he's like, well, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I, I think I'm, am I alive? And so we went into the psychiatrist the next day. I said, so I had Glenn take everything that you have me take a day. We added a glass of wine and, and, and a half a joint and he nearly died. <laughs> And he's, the doctor said, are you trying to kill your friend? And both Glenn and I at the same time said, I said, are you trying to kill me? And Glenn said, are you trying to kill her? And I, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm stopping this stuff. I'm finished. I want to go to the hospital. And I was there for 47 days. And I almost died. I molted. My hair turned gray. It's like my skin peeled off. It was awful. And I had a picture of my little niece, Jessie, up on my wall right next to my bed. And I kept a journal the whole time I was there. And I would write, I'm so sorry, Jessie, that I'm not going to be there to, 
to tell you all the cool things that I wanted to tell you and be there to be your crazy aunt. And and I just started really thinking, like, you know, wow, it's this is you're done. This part of your life is done. Unless you do something about it. So can you do something about it? Of course you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you are gonna walk back on stage in a beautiful long black dress again. And yes, you are gonna take a beautiful picture again. As soon as I got home, it was fantastic because it all came back. It all came right back. I wrote and I, I had had a record that was getting ready to come out and the record came out and I went on tour and I started up my life again. Here's the truth. I know this for sure. We are not defined by the challenges in our lives, but how we face them. Stevie Nicks faced her addictions and she won. Her love of the music, really, that's what sustained her. And for that, she is a master. And what is really remarkable is that even at a young age, she knew, she always knew how her life would unfold. She knew she was a rock star. And she's proof that if you really, truly believe in something, you put it out there, you can make it happen. I think to myself, so when you're 90, because the women in my family live forever, when you're 90, are you gonna be sorry that you don't have like a 90-year-old husband <laughs> that's sitting next to you in a wheelchair that's going like, and now what? Or like, so let's watch your old uh, PBS special or something, or let's watch, uh, you know, let's watch, let's say we watch the movies neither of us can see. Am I gonna be sorry? I don't know, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so, because it was my plan. We found a letter after my mom died that I wrote in 1973 while we were making Buckingham Nicks. And it's a letter to my dad, and it says, everything's going great, and you know that song, Don't Let Me Down Again? Well, it's coming out amazing. And my dad really loved that song, and I said, and Lindsay's just playing amazing. He's just gonna be one of the guitar greats. And then I branch into this paragraph where I'm like, well, someday when I'm sitting in Beverly Hills in my small but beautiful house next to my small but elegant pool in my long white cotton skirt and white blouse with my hat, and enjoying all the music that I love and doing it. I mean, I'm like, what? I planned it out. I planned it out. I think that my life is a testament to believing that if you want something, you can make it happen. So hope springs eternal. Yes, you will take another beautiful picture. Yes, you will walk on stage in a long black skinny dress again. It's possible. So I think what you just have to tell people is it's all possible. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.